everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. I'm very delighted to welcome today Pierce Corfield, who's the founder and CEO of Dashboard, a company breaking new ground with several industrial digitization projects, including a unique solution for monitoring pipeline infrastructure. Pierce founded the company in 2015, and today Dashboard is recognized as one of the top 50 IoT companies in UK. I'm really excited to do this interview because I haven't had a guest in this space. Welcome, Pierce. Thank you, Anissa, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here and, and interested in the questions to come. Excellent. So, Pierce, my first question is, tell me a little bit about how you ended up founding Dashboard. That's a good question. So, back in 2014, I was considering my options. I was on gardening leave and I was thinking about what I was going to do next. And my personal background and career has has centered a lot on open source technologies, communications, cloud before it was cloud electronic security and enterprise mobility. So I got out my crystal ball and my crystal ball told me that the convergence of all of those technologies meet in a market which most people describe as the internet of things. Actually, I don't think the internet of things is a particularly helpful term. I would tend to talk about digitization because it's a data-driven revolution rather than about things per se. So having decided that I wanted to found a business that was going to be in that space, and I'm a B2B guy, so it was always going to be industrial. I I then needed to come up with a primary industrial vertical. I knew I'd have to raise investment. Sorry, that is a key point. So I knew I could only fund it to a to an extent, so I was going to have to pitch investment and so investors need a very tightly constrained proposition. So they wanted a market. And I was doing a little bit of consultancy in energy. And I, I found the energy space really interesting because it was a relative laggard. It was going through accelerated change, a dramatic requirement for increased efficiency, better regulatory compliance, the, the, the social license is getting harder and harder to achieve, and so on and so forth. So interesting vertical in which to work, lots of problems to solve. Global industry, every industrial process you can possibly imagine in one industry, highly regulated. So if you're looking at the two benchmark verticals, it would be defense and energy mm. uh, because they're so highly sort of regulated. So having selected that, I then needed to demonstrate the approach. And as a business, what we do is deliver turnkey solutions. And someone unusually, rather than just be another tech player, what I identified right back at the start was that it would be an absolute requirement to fuse advanced engineering and agile tech into a completely integrated solution. End users want a single supplier relationship and service level agreement and they don't want to to have to be given the runaround or to have to integrate the various systems themselves. So I was looking for an application. Uh, where will I find an application that, 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 that really is a moonshot, complicated, high thresholds? And I was attending an, an event in London, and I met a lawyer. And the lawyer said to me, what are you doing in pipelines on the consultancy work that I was doing at the time? So I said, well... 
I don't really know, tactical, not strategic, but tell me what the issue is. And the lawyer started describing oil theft, <laughs> which to start off with, I didn't even know it was a thing. Huh. Um, uh, but it turned out to be a $50 billion thing annually. Wow. So it is a massive problem <laughs> across the world and has huge uh, ramifications. So consequently, as I, as I started to get my arms around it, I, I discovered that pipeline infrastructure is one of the largest environmental challenges in the world. Mm. And the, the two halves of that were structural and operational integrity and infrastructure security. And so that's how I ended up with designing a pipeline monitoring solution. And, and was I know a lot of entrepreneurs, when they start out, initially their focus is typically very wide and then they go to investors and then the investors find that it's not focused enough. So what was your process of finding that focus? Well, I have to say, I was in my late 40s when I started the journey and uh, this is not my first rodeo, as they say. So it's my, it's my fourth startup, but it's the first one with only one steering wheel. Um, so, What do you mean uh, by that? There was... I spent nine months in intensive research and consultation and designing every aspect to the business, all the strategy, all the market engagement, the route to market, looking at the financial model and everything else before I even incorporated the business. Hmm. And so uh, I, I started the business with a laser beam focus, knowing that the investors wouldn't even talk to me unless there was a laser beam focus and that we'd have to start very narrow and broaden out, diversify, rather than you come up with a big idea and then you have to narrow it down to talk to the investor. So I did it the other way around. I see. And my, I see. And, and, and my approach as, a, as an individual, the way that I work, is what I would call demand-side pull rather than supply-side push. So rather than build a really cool thing, and then when you finish building the cool thing, you then have to find people that are going to buy your really cool thing. What I do is I get really close to a problem space and conceive of a solution and absolutely nail the fact that there's a customer that is saying, if you can solve my problem at a price point that is bearable, I'm in. So what you then have to do is, is, is deliver the solution that, that meets the criteria. Uh, so it's, it's, the inverse. Piers, all these companies that you that are in this space have huge bank accounts and they could throw money to solve these problems. So are they doing it? Why are they not doing it? Can you enlighten me on that? One of the problems of running innovation programs is, is defined well by our engineering manager's expression, which is if you had nine ladies you couldn't make a baby in a month. And the problem is that more people and more resources does not necessarily mean you get to where you need to go faster. Often you end up tangled up in all of the systems and the processes. How you plan your projects is also an incredibly challenging issue. Most large companies tend to operate off project management, which is what's called structured methodology, whereas the software industry has revolved around agile. And now you have a fusion which is both structural and agile for engineering projects. 
but that's relatively uncommon. And the the other challenge is that large corporates are always terrified of disrupting their their current positions. So uh, you have to be prepared to eat your own children and to own your own disruption is perhaps a better way to put it. You have to be prepared to do that, which means in order to keep moving forward. But what tends to happen is that large companies accrete and they settle in and they just want to keep cranking the handle and making the money. And so that makes it very difficult to innovate. And the structures that exist within larger corporates, they're often quite highly layered and highly politicized as well. So there too, it's very difficult to have the right culture. Now, there's a there's an expression which people use now, which is intrapreneur. Yep. But easier said than done. And especially yep. if you're looking at very, very conservative organizations around engineering. Some industries do it better and some industries not so well. So I think most of the smart people, I mean, Gartner will tell you that 55% of all of the advanced solutions in the Internet of Things are originating in companies that are less than three years old. Hmm. We are five and a half years old. So innovation comes from the SMEs. But the SMEs are typically shut out when it comes to going to market because of the structured procurement processes. Right. So, But the the really smart people in the corporate world recognize that having an outer ring of innovative SMEs that are at the cutting edge that can take risks is is a much more efficient way to develop the next generation of their products and services than it is to try and do that internally. Interesting. And and is there like a VC arm inside these big companies? Who would you suggest people in this space try and contact and build a relationship with? Well, certainly uh, corporate venturing has become a massive thing of late and but I listened to the head of one of the corporate venturing, I won't name who it was, but, but one of the corporate venturing teams, and he eviscerated uh, the majority of the corporate venturing industry on the basis that they, they're elephants and they typically tram, trample the mice to death mm. because it's the, the, the disproportionate relationship between a startup and, and a multinational is, 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 is so difficult. Right. That, um, that they normally can't arbitrage it. So even if they've invested in it, even if they're trying to pour love and support, they normally crush it because it gets sucked into, into the air vents of the, of the, of the monster. So, so I think corporate venturing is a really good way to go. And, and, but, but I think the direction of travel, which is positive now, is um, that it's more about partnering. Mm. And it's, and, and it's not just about dumping money into a business and then expecting it to mm. knock it out of the park. But it's, it's about looking for the alignment mm. and looking for the fit and, and finding the people who can finesse that effectively is very difficult. So what, what has enabled us to build a unique prop relationship with what is actually a, a very conservative engineering business historically, is an exceptional individual who has been in the innovation space, but within large companies. 
over an extended period of time and has a really good track record. So he's trusted. So in advocating for us, other people within the organization are listening to him. And it is all about consensus building inside large organizations because you need the buy-in of so many different people in order to make it work. Generally speaking, you get, you know, blockages and, and, uh, and people denying resources and, and, you know, they put stuff in and they slash it and they cut it out. They move people across and, 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 and that, that just kills the opportunity. So you need highly driven individuals who will work stupid hours and who are incredibly passionate about what they do. And, and they are the antithesis of the company man who's on a nine to five and just wants to leave it at the door. They are absolutely diametrically opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. I see. So tell me a little bit about the funding process in industrial tech. What does the landscape look like? How was that process for you? The landscape is bleak and then some. Uh, so I have to be... I have Why to is be, that? Okay, so I'll try to choose my words carefully. In the UK, we don't really have, in industrial tech, we don't have a functioning venture capital market. The people that, most of the funds that claim to be early stage investors are early stage private equity. And there is the world of difference between venture and private equity. If you're claiming to be an early stage investor, but at the same time, one of your criteria is, I want at least a million in recurring revenue. By definition, it's not early stage. Right. And the problem with a solution like ours is because there is a very, very sophisticated in-field system, which is hard engineering, pure physics, edge computing, all sorts of things built into it as well as all the tech stack that sits on top of it. It's capital intensive. You need engineers, you need trial systems, industrial flow loops and, and testing. And so, and not until you get to the end of that, can you then start to engage with the, the market. You've got to be really late stage. Are you familiar with TRL? No. Okay, so in the engineering world, you grade where something is in its development cycle by what's called a TRL, which is a technology readiness level. Hmm. So if you and I are spitballing a, we've got a brilliant idea for the next whatever it is, we start talking about we're at TRL naught or one. And if, if, it's, if it's completely, it's proven, it's certified, it's, it's market ready, it's nine. I see. So you, you've got a journey. To, and the, the first section is really about proof of concept, and then prototyping and so on. And with engineered systems, you go through multiple iterations. You refine and you refine. Everybody knows that it takes. It took um, Dyson sixteen thousand attempts to create a cyclone vacuum cleaner. Well, it's not been quite sixteen thousand for us, <laughs> but you know, it's yeah. a journey. Yeah. So the the way that people start off funding their organisation is they may have their own money, and then they go to friends and family. Um, I didn't go to friends and family. I used my own funding at the very start. And then what I did is I set about finding senior executives, mainly successful business people, rather than professional angels, who understood the proposition. And they provided the investment. So 
to this point, we've raised about two million from private in, in, individuals, and about we've accumulated about two and a half million in innovation funding, hmm. which is various sources. But it's all funding, research, and development. So there's been about four and a half to five million invested in the business so far. What we expected is that we would get to a late TRL and we would get to a tipping point, and then the funds would say, "Aha! Light bulb moment! I can see it's proven." I mean, uh, the problem is that there isn't a market for that. So 86% of all the investment funds deployed in the UK are within the M25. The vast majority of those investment funds are targeted towards B2C, that's business to consumer, and fintech, and and other niche things like edtech and so on and so forth. And ironically, though the digitization revolution represents an extraordinary opportunity for the UK to row itself back into the front rank of industrial nations, and that's because the switch from engineered systems, which we've been priced out of, to intelligent engineered systems mm-hmm. requires four key ingredients in your country. So you need a really good education base. You need really strong engineering capability. You need a really good tech base. And you also need, these days, critical requirement data science in spades. You put those four together, now you have kind of world-class intelligent system. For those that don't understand what digitization is in terms of a market, pre-COVID, the 2025 estimate of the market value was 3.89 trillion. This is the largest technology market that the planet has ever seen. And this is, this is the point at which you move from enabling technologies to pervasive technologies. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, you've got about, about 13 billion connected devices. Mm. The projection is by 2035, that will be about 123 billion. So everything between 13 and 123 is wide space. So it's a market which is wide open and it's, look, everybody knows everything's going to get connected. So it's a huge market. So you would have expected there to be a really vibrant investment market. Right. But but UK investors are incredibly risk averse Mm. and there is a significant difference between the culture the investment culture in the in North America and the UK. And one of the differences is the instrument. So in the US market, and this might sound a little bit technical, but in the US market, people will often have what's called a convertible loan. Yep. And a convertible loan starts off as debt but becomes equity. But the beautiful thing about the convertible note is that it allows you to swerve around the current valuation because your business is early stage, it's not worth very much. And attach attach the valuation, which is the crystallization of the, the, the equity, at the next valuation point, hmm. which of course is the point by which you've gone for full uh, commercialization. So your dilution is much less. We don't really have a market in convertible notes in the UK at all. It doesn't. It's not an instrument that exists. So, so that's it, 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 it is incredibly challenging to raise money for industrial tech in the UK. So how did you go about doing it? Did you go to the US or are there specific funds? What does it require 
to raise money in industrial tech? What would you advise someone who's in industrial tech to do? Certainly, if you're in the innovation space, research and development funding is competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you think about European Horizon 2020 or Fast Track to Innovation, or you think about any of the grants out of Innovate, there are some great you know, mechanisms out there. And we have, we have done reasonably well across those. The UK incentivizes early stage investment in, in angel scale investment with SEIS and EIS. So the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme and the Enterprise Investment Scheme. They are just about those preferential tax efficient investment mechanisms in any market anywhere in the world. So um, it is possible to raise angel investment. But of course, if you're dealing with something which is really quite complicated, like us, that is facing into a market which traditionally has a pretty complicated procurement process and a long sales cycle, your choice of investor is really quite small. Mm. So you're looking for the needle in the haystack. But we, we've managed to do reasonably well with that. And we've also leveraged systems like the uh, UK R&D tax credit system. So I'd say since we founded the business, we've probably clawed back half a million from the R&D tax credit system, which is incredibly useful. And the government is discussing the idea of increasing that where it involves hyperscaling cloud, which might be to our advantage in the future, but, but that's been a really good scheme. We've been throwing several significant financial curveballs along the way, the latest one being COVID. That vaporized 300,000 of debts liquidity that we had lined up, which was the runway through to closing an investment round in Q4. Which, which went sideways quite quickly. So we have had a box clever. However, the attention that we have given to our market engagement is, is what's really allowed us to keep moving forward and continue to attract highly, highly influential people to, to the proposition. And, and I'd say we're now moving towards a, a corporate investment uh, from our global partner, because in April we signed a global partnership with a $26 billion business. And, and so we're crafting a structure with them that will support the business, but not mean that we are locked in with a single exit. Yep. Opportunity, if that yep. makes sense. If I think about the energy market, there are obviously very few buyers, but they're very big buyers. Tell me, how did you go about cultivating those very critical relationships with the right people and the right companies? Shoe leather. (laughs) Lots and lots of shoe leather. Talking to people, networking, listening, learning, understanding, and researching. But how did you get them to actually do a partnership and still allow you to keep the exclusivity out of the contract? Well, let me just explain something. When the pipeline infrastructure owners come in all sorts of different flavors. So the energy market is in three sections. So there's Mm -hmm. upstream, midstream, and downstream 
if you're looking at conventional energy. Upstream is exploration and production, so get it out of the ground. Midstream is move it, distribution. And downstream is into and out of refineries, so that's refined product. So whatever, whether it's plastics, whether it's waxes, whether it's diesel, petrol, it's, it's take its market. Each of those areas in the industry creates slightly different weather. And typically, upstream and downstream is a seesaw, depending on which way the commodity prices go. However, midstream is, is a bit more straight line. So it's, I'm going to charge you $5 a barrel to move product from point A to point B. And in spite of what's happening with the commodity price, that will remain financially viable. Now, in the US market, which I can speak to with some authority, there are 8,500 companies that own pipeline infrastructure, which totals 4 million kilometers of hydrocarbon pipeline infrastructure. So there's, there's a lot more companies in the field than you might expect. And, and we're still only talking at that point, conventional energy. So of course, pipeline is pipeline is pipeline. So that straddles obviously the energy market. And, and for those people that are unfamiliar with the process, your extraction of hydrocarbons is normally through a mechanical process, which involves water. So the byproduct of your creating the hydrocarbons is what's called produced water, which is contaminated water, which you then have to treat and then re-inject into your, into your cycle. So you're all, if, you're in the, if you're in the conventional energy industry, you're simultaneously in the water industry. And of course, you're also in utilities because that's you know, a very short step. Mining, high value minerals in suspension, chemicals, and so on and so forth. So pipeline straddles a, lo- a lot of different industries. And, uh, and it's, it's very much the safest way to move things. If you're looking at the transportation of hydrocarbons, You've got road, rail, and pipelines. And pipelines are exponentially safer than either road or rail. Right. But nevertheless, in the North American market, 70% of all the pipeline infrastructure is technically beyond its design age. And so not only are there unexpected things that occur, so ground level movement, the footings get moved, freezing and thawing, soaking and drying, you've got human intrusion. So you've got somebody accidentally puts a telegraph pole through your pipeline or parks a cement truck on top of it, crushes it. So there's lots and lots of different threats that are beyond your control, as well as things like corrosion and jointing systems and valves and and so on and so forth. So the safe operation of all those pipeline infrastructure um, systems is, is critical. And uh, whilst we are moving to electrification, and of course that's, that's really important, you have to make sure that those systems are operating to the very highest standards in terms of protecting the environment and, and your social responsibility. And that's, so we regard ourselves as being a clean tech business. We're not an energy business per se, we're a tech player that is greening an industry and helping it achieve better standards. I see. And when you approached different companies in the energy sector with this technology and solution, 
what was their reaction and how ready are they to engage with you? And, and also, what stage are you in that TRL that you were talking to me about? <laughs> so to answer the last question first, the, the system is extensively industrially tested and validated. So we're now moving to a pre-production version. So we're TRL 7, kind of going on 8, and we're, we're now in the commercialization uh, phase. The first part of your question, what did they say? You prove it, I'll buy it. So if you can demonstrate that it works, I'm in. What's not to like? And our, our business model is OPEX. So it's a 10-year continuous monitoring contract on a pipeline system, which our unit of measurement is per kilometer per month. So unlike a lot of other things where you've got heavyweight capital investment, that, that wasn't the case with us. The reason why they were prepared to listen to what I had to say was, first of all, because the beating heart of the system is ultrasonics, which uh, has been around for 40 years. So it wasn't, we hadn't invented some entirely new, you know, core technology that was really unproven. It was, what we'd done was we'd effectively torn apart the, the concepts, and then we had applied a bit like a mobile telephone. You wouldn't buy a mobile telephone if it was five years old. So, so the raw physics of ultrasonics remain unchanged. But of course, you've got revolutions in material science, electronic components, embedded programming, data science, the list goes on and on. So, so effectively, we sought to reimagine non-invasive flow metering and then turn it into a platform architecture, which is pretty revolutionary. And the reason why people in the industry were prepared to talk to me is because of all of that research and consultation that I did. So I could speak their language and I understood what their problems were. So I could speak to their problem space. But as, as an innately conservative industry, they would always default to the, yeah, but I'd like to see a documented case study. Yeah. Um, people joke about it in Canada. They talk about the race to be second. And that is the mentality. <laughs> Yeah. So, so if you've sold to Saudi Aramco or Shell or BP, yeah. everybody else is delighted to talk to you. Yeah. The question is, how do you find a commercial trial? And, and that's a challenge. Yeah. And you're in that phase currently, right? And you have been able to find a partner, correct? Y yes. Yes, we have. Yes, okay. more than one. Okay. Oh, that's great. So... What's the next step after this? So there's a UK partner with whom we're doing a trial on UK critical national infrastructure. So uh, that's on um, aviation fuel supply to an airport. And the multinational partner, we're looking at five different projects. And they are different lines of business, if you like. They're a multinational, but they're enormous in North America. And uh, so that, that remains our primary market. And in order to make our business in, in the context of pipelines, in order to make our business scalable, there are three components that we require. So one is, the easy bit is the tech. So you can build a tech stack and you can project tech capability wherever you want to the scale. So that, that, that's, that's relatively straightforward. We can build and scale our tech capability. The middle bit is manufacturing 
and global distribution. Right. And there, we've been looking for a supply chain partner who's not suited to our stage at the moment, but is massive so that there's infinite scalability. And we've been talking to two different companies, both North American, one's $26 billion business and the other one's $6 billion business. But they're both capable of assisting us. Their category is EMS, electronic manufacturing services. Mm. The last piece of the puzzle is that you need to be able to engage with um, operators, asset owners Mm -hmm. in markets. So you have to have boots on the ground. You have to be able to project engineering credibility and capability in all of the markets in which you want to play. Right. And, you know, if we were trying to scale the business, what we would have to do is that we'd have to go out and hire hundreds of people and open offices everywhere. And that's not really our core business. Hence, partnering with somebody who is a world leader in pipeline infrastructure who's saying, you make us more efficient, more effective, and you give us a, a USB, a competitive advantage in the market. That's, that's brilliant. They want the innovation. We brought them an absolutely groundbreaking solution, and we can jointly take that to market. Nice. You've done a nice job of identifying what you're good at, what your strengths are, and what are the pieces for which you need to partner. So talk to me a little bit now about your company. You founded it in 2015. How challenging was it to find the right people to get on the team? You talked about data scientists and engineers. My, my perception is that UK is a strong hub for that. Were you able to attract uh, the right people and how were you able to do that? The, the reality of early stage business is that you want to work with the brightest and the best, but the brightest and the best have an opportunity cost. Right. And they're probably not going to work for free. And so if somebody's available, then you have to ask, why are they available? You can't compete because you don't have any money and everything is bootstrapped and it's all on a shoestring budget. And so that means that for a lot of businesses, especially if it's like Dashboard, which started off as a single single founder rather than four founders, but also has a complexity in terms of the number of technical disciplines that we're covering. So it's not like four guys getting together with a really clever idea on a finance app. Right. You know, and we're all software programmers. You know, that's, right. that's fairly straightforward. This, this was, you know, possibly an act of suicidal complexity. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. But there's method in that madness, which I'll, I'll come back to in a sec. So, so the answer is uh, a whole series of horrible mistakes. Blind alleys, one of the critical objectives for me in terms of building the business was to create a unique culture and to eliminate or at least minimize churn. And that meant creating a true esprit de corps, a whole lot of people who really gelled and who found that this was more rewarding than anything else that they could wish to do. And so why would you want to leave? We're there now. We've achieved that. But there's been multiple full starts along the way. And people who, the, the, the other thing to say about the journey is that what often happens is that as you go through the development cycle from ideation to scale up, as it were, 
it's like a multi-stage rocket. And the people that are really good with a blank sheet of paper and ideas and knocking on doors and so on and so forth, uh, when, when it gets serious and it's all about heavyweight documentation, really detailed stuff, the legs fall off and they're no longer fit for purpose. So, so sometimes people just, you know, run out of road. Sometimes you bring people in and they fundamentally, they don't have the right skill set or the right ethos or so there's a cultural mismatch and so on and so forth. So coming, coming back to, what do you what do you feel are the what have you learned from doing this now for some time in terms of hiring uh, these highly technical and highly sought after people? If you had to go back um, and look at your experience making mistakes and getting it right, what are some of the things you've discovered in terms of how to find the right fit and to build that culture? Don't compromise. So you've got to stand your ground. And if you can't find the right person with the right skills that's, that's got the growth headroom and most, most importantly has the, the, the synergies in terms of their personal ambitions and, and their vision, uh, alignment with, with the vision and objectives of the business, then don't make do because it'll end in tears. Business has become a very dog-eat-dog place over the last 30, 40 years. In the 19th century, you had a number of companies that became very successful but bucked the trend. Cadbury's, Barrett's, Clark's, Roundtree. They were all Quaker-owned businesses, but they behaved in a really good way. They treated their suppliers well. They treated their staff well. They paid more. They gave people holidays. They behaved as really good citizens. Mm. And so I wanted to demonstrate that it was possible to achieve a values and ethics informed business. And that wasn't incompatible with success. Nice. But I, I, I found myself at various points along the way, very isolated, marginalized by people that I was working with who didn't hold the same set of values at all. So you do have to think long and hard about who you invite in and be patient. I was too impatient. I see. What was your biggest mistake that you made in your entrepreneurial journey? And what did you learn from it? I think that certainly trying to, trying to run before we could walk was a, was a mistake. My strategy was to find, so in, in engineering terms, what you often do is you engage with the customer and then the customer will fund some of the development using what is called non-recoverable engineering, NRE. So it gives you a budget to develop whatever it is. So if you think about most of the communication standards that are in use in the cellular world, people like Ericsson and Nokia would conceive of it and then they would charge an operator, say Vodafone, who would put in the money and they would use that money to actually deliver what they showed was possible in a plan. And, and so I was overly optimistic in terms of being able to achieve that in an innately conservative market that doesn't have that view of innovation. Mm. And I underestimated the, the, the complexities of what was what was being achieved 
and how long it would take and how much money uh, it would take to get there. Mm. But whereas a lot of people pivot along the way, actually, we're exactly where we always targeted ourselves to be. And we've overachieved in most of the most of the challenges and most of the metrics that my own where we are now, we've, we've created something which is vastly more sophisticated than uh, I'd ever anticipated and therefore more uh, compelling. The whole ethos was that pipelines are very large-scale assets, normally in, in a very isolated location. Yeah. So you've got a pipeline that is often buried. It's environmentally extreme you have to do everything you're going to do through the pipeline. You can't drill holes in it. You have no power, no communications, and in large parts of the world, everybody is genuinely out to get you. So if you can deliver a solution that ticks all of those boxes and make it financially viable to retrofit to existing infrastructure, pretty much everything else looks like a soft option. So. I went for a moonshot as an extreme, but I underestimated how God it would be. Yeah. I'm curious. I look at your background and you've got such a varied background. You've done so many different things from mobility to uh, telecom to all kinds of things. But what, what drives you to pick something this hard and this complicated to do? That's that's a good question. Well, I have what might be now described as a portfolio career. And that's really because I, I messed up my education. I'm the least academically qualified person in the entire company. And I started my first business when I was 17. And I, I was fully determined to be self-made. And, and so, consequently, I never had the academic qualifications. So, people would encounter me and they, they might think, Oh, he's quite right, but actually there was no academic proof. Yeah. Yep. So I had to duck and dive, and and so that led me into spending uh, a lot of my working life around innovation and uh, early stage. What has always fascinated me is technology as an enabler. So I see technology, and I'm I'm in, including engineering, but, but all forms of tech. It's just like a giant tool board. But unlike a lot of people in um, the tech industry, I've never been confused over which, was the, which is the dog and which is the tail. The technology is there to serve a set of commercial outcomes. <laughs> the moment you've got somebody from the, your IT department telling you that you can't do that because you need to fire him or her and find somebody who understands that their role is to facilitate the commercial outcome. So I, I've always been fascinated by how you can improve things, how you can make things better. And the extreme example is the energy market because the, the, there, are, there are four area, four corners to the box. So the, the, one, one of those corners is they have to be more efficient. They have to reduce costs. They have to use less people. They have to improve. The second one is they have to be a regulatory noose is tightening all the time. So mm. re regulatory compliance is absolutely critical. 
Mm. The third element is that self-insurance is no longer quite so much of an opportunity. And a bit like driving your car on the road, the regulator will, in a few years, not be licensing you to do anything, to operate a pipeline, for instance, if you don't have insurance. Because we've, we saw what happened in the Gulf with BP. It almost killed the company because they were largely exposed. They had no stock loss. So, and if I own a pipeline and it ruptures, I can just collapse the business. And if, right. if, if, you, if you're the state, you just have to pick it up. Well, that's going to change. And the last piece is that the conventional energy market is, is suffering a huge backlash in terms of its environmental footprint and its long-term sustainability, despite the fact that green energy is not quite so green. That's a whole conversation that we could have in its own right. So they, they have slightly become a bit of a whipping boy, but it is, it is appropriate. So in a pool of diminishing capital and in a, a massive problem in terms of recruitment for the industry, only the people with the best reputations will survive. And therefore, those four corners define the offerings because we are looking to bring a cutting-edge innovation and deliver rock-solid commercial solutions, but they must be both environmentally and socially sustainable at the same time. Right. Interesting. Well, look, we're almost at the end of our time. I could go on for a lot longer because it, it's such a fascinating field with, with such a big impact on our everyday lives. I'm surprised that there aren't more startups, more money being invested in this space, which, like you said, has such a huge footprint. But I'm hoping that companies like yours continue to, to do their bit to, to change that. So thank you so much, Piers. Before we, we end, just wanted to ask you a few questions non-related to your business. What book would you recommend as something that you know people should read? What's been a book that's left a lasting impact for you? Well, I've, I've just read uh, American Dirt. Yeah, which is which is a tough read, but highly highly topical when you're talking about migrants and immigration. Right. I think there are there are lots of inspiring stories that I've taken taken great uh, you know lessons from along the way and and i also i think people other people's life journeys is is is, is really interesting so lord brown wrote a book about his experiences in innovation so he was a bit of a groundbreaker and he was the chairman of, of bp okay um, what about your favorite city in europe favorite city in europe well I, of course i am a bit spoiled i've traveled a fair amount and I love, you know, uh, Europe. I am European to the soles of my feet. And I'm about to go and spend three weeks in, in, in France. I asked my wife to marry me at the top of the Eiffel Tower. So, but London remains an incredibly special city and still incredible. But I think there are so many wonderful cities, each of which has its own unique kind of pulse. Okay. But, uh, but, but then, you know, the people in Rome are absolutely delightful. And, um, it's pretty much everywhere in Europe. 
is, yeah, your, I, I, I is just, your space to be. <laughs> and, and Prague, you know, so there are just, there are there's so many and so many places I've not been, you know, so I really want to go to Tallinn in Estonia and, and uh, Krakow. And, um, is there any sort of anything on your bucket list that's unusual or interesting that you plan on doing that maybe you could share? Well, lots of, yeah, lots of exploration and travel. It's not necessarily terribly extreme. I started sailing when I was, well, from the age of three, I sailed eight months of the year. I have a long-standing love of, 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 of sailing. So there's lots of, you know, big stuff I'd like to do in sailing, but probably won't ever have the opportunity. But and this year is my 20th wedding anniversary. And so the, what we were going to do was drive from Vancouver to La Jolla. Years ago, part of my family used to live in Marin County outside San Francisco. And, um, uh, and I spent some time living in Portland in Oregon. So I love that part of the world. Yeah. But there are, you know, I'd love to go to Patagonia, which is said to be lovely, New Zealand, you know, the Coromandel Coast. And, and so there's just no shortage. Yeah, that is so true. Well, you've given the the listeners a, a number of really lovely choices. So thank you very much, Pierce, for joining me today. Like I said, I really enjoyed our conversation and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. It's been uh, an absolute delight talking to you.